Welcome to 50% with Marcel Combs, my good friend and mentor. I'm Deantha Gratton, and on this podcast, she will travel a journey of leadership with each guest as she analyzes the ingredients that lead women to their current role. Marcel's goal is for you to walk away with tools to support your very own journey, no matter where your current destination is today. Hello, Deantha. Hi, Marcel. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay, Deantha. It's a sunny, sunny and beautiful, yep. mm-hmm. and that makes everything okay. It does. You can do anything with that. Uh, today we have Victoria Pelletier. Yeah. And she is a beautiful young woman who who has worked uh, mainly in the corporate world most of, since she was 24. Since she and was that, 24. Yeah, I know, I love she that. also gave us a little tidbit that she actually went to work the mm-hmm. first time when she was 11 because there were just things that she wanted. I love that spirit. You know? So yeah. I think, and she she truly has worked mainly in Fortune 500 mm-hmm. companies and and really is a believer in the impact of culture on an organization. It's huge, Marcel. So we, yeah. she, she has a lot of real positive things. One of the things she said that I think is really impactful is that she learned as much uh, from mentors <laughs> or leaders. What not to do. <laughs> that she, yeah. right, what not to do. Yeah. And then as she did for people that to do. And I, I understand that yeah. too. Yeah, a lot uh, of wisdom with Working that. for mm-hmm. someone where you think, I'm never going to do that. Yeah, don't so. want to go there. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, let's go to Victoria. Well, welcome, Victoria, to the show today, to 50% with Marcel Combs. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yes, we're so we're so excited to hear about your story. I've read your bio, and I, I usually start out by getting the guests to just tell us a little bit about themselves and about your journey. I know you you had a as I read your bio, you had a little bit of a rocky beginning, which might be an understatement. So begin wherever you want and take us to where you are today. Thank you. Yeah, happy to. Uh, and yeah, Marcel, it's interesting. My early years, my origin story, I started sharing more openly as I felt I was doing a disservice to those that I was coaching and mentoring. If I didn't speak about my why, my oh. drive, et cetera, in ter- what, how that's propelled me in my career, again, I think I wouldn't, wasn't being an authentic leader. So I'll share it you know, with the audience here very briefly. I'm born to a drug-addicted teenage mother who was exceptionally abusive to me. And I went in and out of the child welfare system. I'm fortunate to be adopted uh, into a loving family, but lower on the socioeconomic scale. And so it was a combination of those reasons and others. There was other sort of adversity for me that propelled me, the desire to be better than the biology or circumstance. And so for me, the one place I could excel at was working. And so I started working at age 11, um, it, in part because the lower socioeconomic status if I wanted anything that my friends had, you know, I never had to worry about food insecurity or clothing, but, um, you know, yeah. the, the Sony Walkman and those sorts of things when I needed to, uh, I know that dates me, right? Um, I, then I need to, to work for that. And so I really like focused on learning, improving my skills uh, and by 24, actually, I'd been recruited out of the banking environment I was working at to become the chief operating officer for a business-to-business um, outsourcing organization. And from there, I've stayed as an executive, predominantly in that B2B um, space. 
and then really shifted my focus, however, to um, almost a maniacal focus around leadership and culture and building great workplaces and communities to uh, to live and work in. That's great. I, I have to ask, because I have an adopted daughter um, that I adopted when she was age four. So I have to ask how old you were when you were adopted? Four. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's yes. great. Yeah. You know, yeah. that that was a love, a, a lovely age. I have uh, four older children and I, I said this was the best birth and the, you know, they came potty trained and they could talk. I mean, it, it was fabulous. She is now 30. Um, but, you know, she, it was a, a wonderful a wonderful journey with her. Um, and so I always, I used to tell her your brothers, I just had to take whatever I got with them, but you, we chose. So I think, uh, she would tell you, she always felt special. I don't know if that was a great thing or not. Um, but she's, she's a wonderful young woman now. So, um, I, I love to hear uh, successful stories of adoption and and being in a loving family. So tell me, you were 24 and I was looking up your degree. Your degree is not in business. It's in psychology. <laughs> well, the plan was to be a lawyer. So I chose oh. <laughs> a psychology de- um, you know, degree as my undergrad because I thought it would help me understand um, those that I would, you know, defend uh, or support from a, a, a legal perspective, and yeah. it turned out that I, I just loved the business world. So actually, I worked for, as I said, a bank, and I worked all throughout university for them, and got promoted up through the ranks into leadership role. And they offered me a relocation across the country uh, and a more senior role. And so at the time, I thought, well, I guess I'm going to take a year off and do this before I go to law school. Uh, and oh. I never ended up going as it turned out, I followed my passion and what I love to do and the challenge that was in front of me. Although I will tell you, I read a ton of legal contracts from a business perspective now. I bet you do. I bet you do. I I can relate whether you, sometimes, you know, if people ask me what I wish I had, you know, been interested or did, I said, it would have been nice for me to have a business class. That would have... I think my first business book was Accounting for Dummies. The dummy books are great books. Um, They are very elemental and they work very well. Um, So that's that's quite interesting that you wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I found um, that, and it's interesting to me, that a lot of banks do promote within the ranks. did you find that? I mean, of course, it happened with you, but did you find that across the banking industry? More so now, more progressive. I mean, there, there's still a long way to go in many, many parts of large you know, banks and other financial institutions when you get to some of the senior ranks, but um, many of them are quite progressive. And I'm actually originally from Canada. There are five large mm-hmm. Canadian banks there. I mean, there's many smaller regional ones too, but five big ones. All of them have been very, very focused as long as I can remember about creating um, diversity uh, within their workforce and much more inclusive environments. And so for me, I, it was very much supported, although I, 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 a lot of that was in my own hands. I'm a big you know, believer. You know, We are the CEO of you know, brand you, you know, me and Victoria in this case. And so making sure I got the right 
education. I was like this voracious learner. I, you know, started in outbound telemarketing, selling insurance, right? I was 17 years old in university. Like that's what, how I started at the bank and wow. then very quickly moved into leadership. But I learned and I took all the courses around retail banking, around lending. And ultimately I even got my certification to sell securities. So I ended up leading a large operation for a, the discount brokerage for one of the banks that I was working for. But that was, yes, the bank being really supportive of progressing me through the organization, but I took it upon myself to, you know, do all of that learning and improving my skills. You know, I lead a women in leadership group in healthcare, but it's in the financial side. And we did a white paper, and of course it's based on the U.S. statistics, on why women who we graduate about 50%, maybe 51% women with MBAs. But when we get to the C-suite, we don't see that same representation. It has gone up a little bit now, but it's only about 20% of those MBAs actually end up in a C-suite type position. Have you, it sounds like yours is a real success story in there. And of course it's Canada. So maybe, maybe they're a little more ahead of us. Um, but, but we find real struggles in the financial world with women in C-suites. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I was first relocated to the U.S. in 2006. So I've spent a lot of time in North American and global organizations. And so I don't, you know, I don't think there's a uniqueness to Canada, although I am very proud of my Canadian roots and they tends to be much more inclusive. Uh, You know, the diversity Mm -hmm. is quite broad, but, but the inclusivity part is where, where I'm really, really proud of what they've done, but you're right. The data is um, quite horrific, um, you know, for women. I mean, the world economic forum late last year said that the gender parity in pay was still going to take 60, six zero years in North America and over a hundred in other parts of the world. And then even if you just look at like really simply the data point around Fortune 500 CEOs, there are only 53 women and only six black CEOs. I mean, so clearly we have much more to do. I do find there are industries that tend to be more focused on it. And as we said earlier, like financial services, I think is is trying, but, um, uh, but trying is not enough. I use a phrase around strategic intentionality. And so I think, you know, that companies period have to do much more strategically, intentionally to not only um, attract uh, and, you know, focus on the talent acquisition, but a big part of where they lose out is so many companies are focused on bringing diverse talent in the front door, but not creating the right kind of policies, procedures, and inclusive environment where women and other diverse groups feel like they belong. And so they tend to exit out the back door nearly as quickly as we bring them in the front. And so that's where a lot more of the focus I think needs to, you know, to be. And then the other thing I'd say related to women in particular is there's also data that shows women do not apply for the promotion or new opportunities unless they feel that they have nine or 10 out of the 10 requisite skills they're requested. Whereas men do that at, you know, an average of six at six out of 10. You know, so we just need to get yeah. way more comfortable as women recognizing <laughs> our value, our skills, mm-hmm. and leaning into a little bit of the things that make us uncomfortable and just making the ask. Yeah. You know, I've read those same statistics. It's, you know, just as I work with women, and I guess um, I grew up in a household where um, it wasn't your picture perfect household, but my the one one of the things that my dad did really well 
was to tell my sister and I that we could basically do anything. And, and so, so many times in my life, I haven't, perhaps I should have felt <laughs> uncomfortable, but what can they do? They can't eat you if you ask. They can just say no, which is, you know, let's just say it's always more fun to win than it is to lose. Yes, it is important to learn how to lose, but anybody who tells you it's fun to lose is lying to you. Um, so, you know, at least that's a Marcel Combs thought. Um, so it, it's, it's quite interesting. It is really discouraging the pay scales that, and I, of course, my business was in home health and hospice, and we are very female dominated because a lot of that is nursing. So truly, we we had much fewer men anywhere in the organization than we did women. Um, the face of that is changing now. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's works at a large hospital in uh, Dallas, and, and they're all female. The whole staff is female in their case management department. But now they've had their second leader of that organization as a man. Now, maybe he was the most qualified, so don't get me wrong. I do believe you need you need to be the most qualified person in the room, no matter where you are. Um, but, you know, it's curious to me that that was the case there. Um, but maybe that has to do with a lot of things that I'm not privy to. But let's let's talk about mentors. Have you had some good mentors along the way as you seem to have just launched out um, on your own and, and surpassed all odds? I am. Um, what's really interesting is Marcel's, I can't say I've actually had a ton of really good mentors and um, maybe reverse mentors, but not in the way you think of reverse mentors. And in and when I say re reverse mentors in many of the companies I work for, it's pairing, you know, let's say newer, early professional or mid-professional careers with executives. And the executives tend to learn a lot from those. That's traditionally what people mean by reverse mentoring. In my case, reverse mentoring has meant there's been many, many leaders I worked for or with who were horrific. Um, in fact, <laughs> I looked at them and I aspired to be nothing like them. Uh, and so I learned from observing others who I didn't believe were doing it right or certainly the way I would want to, be, to lead. That doesn't mean that I haven't worked with some great leaders who've given me some really good advice. You know, and there's one, um, you know, man in particular, Richard, that I worked for who um, I worked for him in two different companies. He recruited me to, when he left and went to another company and I, I ended up following him about a year later. And I remember him saying to me at some point, Victoria, it's okay to be vulnerable. And I thought I was, because I actually, I, I did learn, I think, you know, being 24 years old, um, leading as a COO, which is a very large stretch operation, new mother, only woman, youngest by two decades. For all of those reasons, I, you know, there was a ton of imposter syndrome. And I, I think I showed up in a certain way at work, um, uh, you know, feeling like I had to be all business all the time. I wasn't going to show feelings, emotions, or vulnerability because I didn't want people to think I was weak and I didn't deserve to be there. Um, and that bit me kind of in the butt a few years later when I realized, um, although I had really solid business results, I think, and many of the team, the team that I, I, I led, you know, highly, you know, effective and efficient, I think they, some of them feared me 
uh, versus following me because I showed up in a certain way. So um, I had started to shift that, but then I remember Richard saying to me at one point, it's okay to be vulnerable. And it's funny because I don't think he was over overly vulnerable. He was very like the stereotypical British man, very staid, <laughs> not showing, but it was interesting that he gave me that feedback. And um, so that was super helpful. And then I've had some others who um, have just been cheerleaders or champions for me, mm-hmm. um, which, which has certainly helped. Um, but those bad examples I've had, Marcel, are I think the reasons why I'm so focused on being a strong coach, leader, and mentor for others. Mm-hmm. I started to say because that's your business today to be to coaching and and helping mentor others to good positions. Some it's part of. I mean, I I lead large scale businesses or business mm-hmm. units. Most of my career has been in Fortune 500 companies, so I run yeah. a division or a market unit. I have actually built and bought businesses as well. Um, so I I view um, I'm accountable for you know sales or re- and revenue and profitability for the mm-hmm. companies I work for. Um, but ultimately, that's driven by great team members with great culture mm-hmm. and a team that feels highly engaged. So that's why I've made so much of my focus um, and what I talk about as a public speaker or a lot of what I write about leadership and culture. So no, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not paid to, I, I'm paid to do that as part of my job, but I'm not an executive coach per se, um, you know, in terms of how I spend all my time. Mm -hmm. You've said several times culture is so important. What do you think are the key components of culture and Sometimes I feel, especially once someone gets to a CEO position, and it's an old term, group think, and and where all the people around that CEO protect them or only feed them information, um, and they they become um, somewhat, you know, immune to really understanding that they have problems with their culture. Uh, what what do you think are the key components of that, and and how can a, a CEO of a large corporation, um, you know, basically defend themselves against only getting the information that his key staff want to give him or her? Uh, well, so tr- transparency is key. I mean, you ask. Uh, there's so there's so much. There's no silver bullet. Uh, you know, I think a lot of you know, companies think, hey, I've written this great like vision or mission statement and our aspirational, you know, um, um, sentence around what we want our culture to be. But it comes down to many things. We've talked about diversity and inclusion. I'm a massive advocate um, uh, around that. So that's required to, you know, create diverse workforces that where people feel like they belong. But that sense of belonging comes from um, the policies, the procedures, the language, action and behavior of all of its leaders. And it also, you know, related to what gets shared with the CEO. I've actually always kind of lived by this motto of like, no surprises. Like don't, I don't ever want to be shocked or surprised by something like come to me. If it's bad news, it's bad news. And so creating a safe environment where people can share and also creating one of as much transparency as possible. Now recognize it's not always possible for me to share completely openly what's happening within the organization. There's strategic things, there's confidential things that can't be shared, but, but being really transparent around why we make the decisions we're making and how other people, you know, contribute to 
the purpose and mission of the organization, how they at, a, at an individual level. Those are all, you know, some of the key things and elements I think that contribute to culture, which I believe is the outcome of all of those things. You know, again, you can state what you want, but if you are not living and breathing all of those things every day, um, you know, we're, we're not actually going to strive and achieve the kind of culture we put up on, you know, the wall. If, if you went into an organization and um, you talked about sales and their sales were falling, um, their culture was, you know, um, iffy, perhaps people were unhappy. They said lots of negative things about the company. Um, you know, where, where would you begin, especially if they're 500 million, a billion dollar company, where, <laughs> where would you begin? Uh, um, <laughs> here, here's the typical consultant speak. It depends. I would want to understand like, you know, the data, like in the data, so around analyzing from a sales perspective, many of these large companies will have, you know, sales technology, CRM platforms that um, if people are, you know, coding them accurately, why they're losing, right? So yeah. I say if they code them accurately, because many times I see right. games being played with that. Uh, oh, the client decided- They to all hate, so all salespeople all hate documenting in the CRM. Yes. yes. Uh, you know, but, but understanding, I mean, most people say, oh, it was price. Well, okay, we know price is not, you know, the, the single answer here. And so there's many things. So, I mean, I would want to understand why they're not winning. And so in some cases, I, I think it's a combination of- um, the the way we focus on relation the relationship based sell and I love um the you know there's two two books by CES one is the challenger customer and one's the challenger sale and one just talks about the you know the people who buy and the and their um and and categorizes the buyer types and what motivates them and how they make decisions and the other is talking about and particularly in the business to business world um or um yeah but predominantly business to business the average is five point four decision makers you know, per like say contract sale. And that, that, this was written a number of years ago. So I'm sure that's probably more like seven today. And so rec recognizing how to build relationship, how to create strong value proposition. Um, and again, building those relationships with the buyers. I mean, that I often find that's a big part of it. In I've worked, as I said, in mostly Fortune 500 companies, many of whom are extremely matrixed and have multiple um, products or services lines. And every one of those company talks about operating as one insert company name, but then they don't have incentive models that often drive the collaboration for them to work across those product or service lines. Mm -hmm. And so then they need to rethink the incentive models that encourages the collaboration to bring together those disparate product and service lines to truly work together as one company for the customer. Uh, and then there's also some other reasons around what, you know, you see this toxic top performer, and usually they're in sales, I find, um, who continue <laughs> to get promo promoted and rewarded, and no one wants to work with them. It just creates, going back to culture, that's one of the things as a leader we need to take a stand for. Uh, so exactly. it can be some or all of those reasons. And so I need, that's why I said it depends. I'll need to really assess, like, what's really the problem here? Yes, it seems to always be that top performer who brings in so much business, but they're also toxic. 
to the whole organization. That's a real dilemma, uh, a real hard um, decision. You know, I have to ask this because you come from the banking industry and we've seen banks fail. And then we have a lot of gossip uh, in, I, I say gossip, we have a lot of news that talk about why they failed or, you know, who might fail next, which makes everyone nervous, needless to say. What are you going to do, bury it in the backyard? I don't know. Um, but, you know, do you, do you feel that culture played in to any of the failures of the banks that we have seen? Yeah, I won't. I won't talk about necessarily the most recent ones um, and what's happened yeah. there. If we look, at, you know, and this one's so public, so I don't, um, you know, I'm comfortable talking about. Like, but look at what happened with Wells Fargo a number of years ago. Uh, oh. Around again, this goes to actually to incentive models. You've got tellers and customer service reps in a branch who a big part of their compensation and performance, and therefore um, whether they maintain their jobs or not, was how much they upsold to the customers who came in to make banking transactions. And so, you know, cross-selling, upselling them. And so instead by creating these models where people were losing their jobs for not doing so, um, they slipped into initially what they probably thought was a gray zone where they're like, oh, I'm just gonna add this product. It doesn't cost the customer anything, but I'm gonna show that I've done this, but very quickly slipped into a really, really dark, dark zone. And, and so that created this small, and people were again, in, you know, rewarded for, recognized for those activities. And, and that happens in, you know, too, too many different, not just banking um, or financial services, it happens in many, many places. And, um, you know, even if, okay, now I said I wasn't going to talk about the recent ones, but um, I've been very, <laughs> like, but, but you think about, um, you know, the thresholds that were created for these smaller banks and hearing, I mean, the hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentation from the regulators coming out to say, like, we were too slow. We were afraid to call out some of these things. Um, you know, the the growth that was being see, seen and applauded. And so, you know, it goes back to, um, I, I, I live by the philosophy of doing the right thing. And the right thing isn't always easy. Um, it means being really bold. It means taking risk for you personally, if you're going to be the one who calls that out. Um, and so here, I wish we'd start rewarding more of that uh, versus incenting the alternative. Yes, it's a it's it's a hard it's a hard situation. You know, um, you're you work on your own as an entrepreneur. Um, so, what inspires you? What makes you get up in the morning and say, "I'm going to tackle a new sale for myself"? Um, what what does that for you, Victoria? Well, I'm, I should clarify, Marcel, I am both a big corporate executive working for large companies, IBM, okay. Accenture, American Express, and I have built and bought businesses. So I have this incredible entrepreneurial spirit. And even within the large corporates, I'm usually trying to develop new like market opportunities within, uh -huh. but the stuff I do for my own. So I'm a you know professional public speaker um, and I said I don't do executive coaching. I, I I guess I technically do, but it has to be by referral only. Um, and I, um, but I focus on that work as my side hustle, but really because I enjoy it. Uh, yeah. You know, and I've, so I've always had one of those. It, they, many times it's just been passion projects. Uh, like I built a natural bath and body works company, like in the early two thousands, 
because I, I enjoyed doing it for myself, but you don't make a single bar of soap. And so then it just, there was a, a voluminous amount and I created gifts and people wanted to buy them. And so that, that's how that business was started. I bought a data and analytics company in five or six years ago because I saw a tremendous opportunity um, and the ability to leverage my corporate um, experience into that space. Um, but you know, for the entrepreneurs and I, I'm heavily invested, um, not just monetarily, but I spend time with, um, founders and startups mm -hmm. and many of them are female founders and, you know, how did they get up each day? And so I spend a lot of time, you know, talking to them about that alignment around, you know, passion. They have to love, um, what they're doing. They also have to recognize, um, there's this mindset between total addressable market, total addressable problem. Um, one, it tends to be big corporations, just how are we going to increase market share? Whereas the total addressable problem is, you know, when you're solving, um, you know, problems that yet don't have data behind them, when you need to go and figure out like, what's the market, what's the pricing strategy. And so there's different ways as entrepreneurs to approach that. Um, and then also, um, you know, just bringing great people around you to help you. Um, with that next sale um, and and growth in the business and recognizing that as the entrepreneur, you don't have all the experience, all the skills necessary and surrounding yourself with great people and um, learning how to delegate and outsource appropriately. Yeah. Um, when you talk about your major job and then your side hustle, how do you take care of you, Victoria? How do you uh, tell people um, in that, you know, that you take care of yourself. I am, um, I've gotten very good at establishing and maintaining certain boundaries for myself. I am a, I'm a fitness fanatic. I work out six wow. days a week. And so one of the wow. things I do to protect that is I block my calendar before 9am now I'm in a North American role currently, so it's a lot easier. I'm not worried about like international time zones. Um, yeah. It was a lot harder when I sat in global roles, but I, I do that. It doesn't mean I don't take calls before 9 a.m., but it just, it, it needs to be by exception only. And so I protect uh -huh. that time for me to work out, shower, and not look like a wet dog with my hair on camera um, <laughs> you know, before a certain time. But I also do things like two 30-minute blocks on my calendar day, and my assistant knows he can move those if he needs to, but that's so I can you know, get through email because otherwise I'm back to back to back and I don't want to be stuck doing all of that at night. Um, and then I'm very, very focused on um, not only maintaining the network I have, but continuing to grow that network. So, you know, carving out time for, you know, business lunches, networking lunches, or after work drinks um, or whatever, co coffee, <laughs> but, um, to go and, and, you know, spend time with people. And so that's one way just, I kind of you know, do things not only for myself, um, you know, from a fitness perspective, but also that gives me joy that brings value to me personally and professionally. That's, you know, great advice, really. It's, it's hard to live that, but great advice to try to at least attempt to stay there. I, you know, I always like to sum up with what books, and you mentioned two books, um, but what books or podcasts or um, ways that you're learning still. And I, I know networking launches is certainly one of those to take someone to lunch that you know nothing about what they do and they have something to challenge you. But uh, what what would you suggest for the audience? What are things that are you're listening to or reading right now? Yeah, I was just looking up at my my bookshelf because um, there's <laughs> a woman. Uh, 
uh, Carla, she's um, forgetting her last name right now. I just listen. I belong to um, Chief, which is a women's executive network. So I'm learning lots from there. They bring these kind of um, powerhouse speakers to talk to us. Um, and um, another one is DEI Deconstructed by Lily Zhang. Uh, I'm also a huge Simon Sinek, um, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant. Um, those are some of the ones that I'm huge fans of. And so for me, that, that my time actually at the gym in the morning, I, I always start with podcasts. And so I listen to like yeah. CNN's five things, the daily podcast, kind of get caught up on what's happening um, in the world. And then I'll either move to um, an, a, another business podcast. By the way, Brene Brown had both Simon Sinek and Adam Grant together in a two-part oh. podcast. That was phenomenal. Like the three of them together. Um, wow. So I really, really enjoyed that. And then otherwise I, I tend to do a lot of audiobooks. Um, oh, and so right. I'm, I'm, that's a great time. I don't have lots of other time throughout the day. So that even though I'm there exercising, my brain is also, you know, going as well. Working. Yeah. And it, for me, it's that listening to something that helps me want to exercise since I don't love to do that, but it does get me, it, it allows me to get through it. How I would love to be one of those people who just can't wait to get out there and sweat. Um, it's just the wrong DNA, I think. Well, it's been wonderful to have you today, Victoria. I think, um, I think the audience is really gonna love to hear what you have to say and such, um, such a beautiful woman inside and out. Um, so how would people get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you? So I have a website, which is victoria-peltier.com, where people can learn about my speaking engagements, my book. I post a lot of things there, and they can also choose to connect with me on the other social media platforms directly from there. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on 50% with Marcel Combs today. Thanks for having me.